Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So today on Ask Dr. Dawn, we have an infectious disease frolic this week. And we're going to start out with a review of the latest monthly public health report this last Tuesday offered by the local Santa Cruz Department of Health to practicing physicians. And there was a lot of super interesting information this week. Uh, we'll start with just uh, a little bit about infectious diseases that we all think about this time of year, COVID and flu. And uh, you probably caught the news that uh, they are that we are no longer recommending the five day uh, if you're not really very sick with covid and you are getting better and have no fever you are allowed to go out masked the five day uh, quarantine recommendation has disappeared i'm not sure exactly how well people were following that but in any event as long as you're getting better and you wear a mask, uh, the presumption is that you probably will not kill anybody anymore because most of us, even if we are unvaccinated, uh, have ample protection from just low-grade exposures. And those who don't, well, I guess we aren't worrying about them anymore in the interests of just getting back to normal. Uh, Flu is down. We're both of the... uh, Infection rates now are below a R0 of 1. That means we are not going to get geometric progression of infection. So we're out of the epidemic zone, really. Uh, we're also monitoring wastewater for lots of things, but COVID in particular, uh, it's down 30% between January 1st and February 7th. So it's back to the mid-November level of wastewater. RSV is... Uh, increasing, but uh, you've got to really understand that wastewater and RSV isn't uh, all that good because the carriage time is much shorter. So with COVID, people can be off-gassing, so to speak, uh, COVID virus that we can pick up on a wastewater test for sometimes months. So don't expect that to go to zero, even if they're upper, above the navel uh Effluvium is no longer contagious, but we're having a a spate of community acquired uh, infections due to coxy, as we fondly call it, and that is coccidioidomycosis. And uh, coxy is a fungus. Some uh, you'll know it probably as valley fever. And it happens when we get rain after a dry spell. Well, in California, we have 9,280 cases. That's a record high. Locally in Santa Cruz County, a coastal community where this is actually rare, it's 18 cases. So we're really looking at some, you know, some pretty, a pretty significant outbreak in terms of the percentage increase, although it's still a low number. It should be suspected in people with community-acquired pneumonia who have been, had been exposed to outdoor dust and dirt. This is a soil organism and will often uh, inhale these things in uh, 
areas like construction areas or dust storms, earthquakes. It can also uh, infect uh, wounds. That's quite rare and not something that we're going to find. Uh, It's really quite uh, dangerous for a couple of subgroups, the immunosuppressed, as you'd expect, uh, very frail or diabetic patients, uh, pregnant patients, and oddly enough, people who are of African or Filipino ancestry seem to get sicker from COXI than the average person. Essentially, if a, what we are told to do by the CDC is if a person is not responding, usually give them about 48 hours to respond to empirical antibiotics for pneumonia. So if you see a case that isn't getting better after 48 hours, you're going to maybe ask a few more questions. Did did you just travel here from Fresno, for example, because the uh, San Joaquin Valley is definitely a problem, certain desert areas of Arizona as well. So it travels history to those regions. And also if anyone in Uh, your family has had community-acquired pneumonia. Testing is through antibody testing. It's quite accurate. And like with most things in infectious disease, you just have to think about it. And we were having a bit of a measles outbreak as well. This is nationally. And uh, essentially what we're advised is if you have fever and a rash, wear a mask. Measles is very, very airborne and very contagious. And of course, uh, it is, we're seeing less vaccination in children. So we went from 95% vaccination uh, last year to 93% for children under five years old. This is not the right direction. And children and teens who are unvaccinated and exposed can get very, very sick. This can be lethal. It can cause brain damage. This is not uh, a disease that you can necessarily assume is going to bounce off. Uh, Another thing that we're recommending now is if you are taking your child under 15 months abroad for any international travel to go home to, let's say, you know, see, see the family in Costa Rica or something like that, you'll want to get them vaccinated early and we can vaccinate. uh, We, we can vaccinate quite early. Uh, It just usually is we wait because you don't get as good a take on the measles vaccine. But if you're going to be exposing that child, even a short-term bump of their antibodies is something you want. Another thing making the rounds around town as we're on the infectious disease news is uh, shigalosis. This is a very contagious and nasty diarrheal illness. Uh, It's Extremely contagious. So, ten. Back, so, if you're going to get E. coli uh, or Salmonella, you're going to need about a thousand bacteria in your inoculum to get sick. With gigolosis, you need ten. So, hand washing, particularly uh, in if you're having, you know, if you're having a lot of con, uh, contact with the homeless community, and then you go eat lunch. Uh, if you're in the homeless community. You're going to want to really push the hand washing, the hand sanitizer, if you don't have access to soap and water, will work just as well. But this is nasty. It can be contagious for four weeks, even though the bloody diarrhea and the fever only last for a couple of days. And contaminated water is a problem. 
So right now, with all of this rain, uh, anywhere around where unhoused people have uh, are staying, potentially you have to consider that running water that uh, as contaminated. We're seeing a lot of co-infection with sexually transmitted infections and Shigella, and also just for fun, back for a re back for a victory lap is norovirus. You'll remember this as the cruise ship virus. And it is currently making the rounds in skilled nursing facilities in town. So, uh, again, we do our best to isolate. We do our best to hygiene. But your your best bet if you are visiting anyone in a skilled nursing facility right now is wear a mask, sanitize in, sanitize out. Pretty standard stuff. I just want to give you a preview of another aspect of public health, which is accidents. And we had a little, we'll be getting uh, either Teresia Rogerson or uh, Kelly Curlett, who are, uh, are part of the pediatric work group to and called Vision Zero, uh, to talk to us about e-bike accidents and how you can prevent them. That's coming up in the next couple of weeks. So I'm not going to steal their thunder with too much more information except to say that because of physics, e-bikes actually are more dangerous than bicycles. And we'll hear all about that probably the week after next. Haven't got that one booked for you yet, but I'm looking forward to doing more interviews as time goes by. So if you have um, a candidate, please go ahead and go to askdrdon.com and hit the Contact Us button and send us an email there. Staying on our lovely uh, frolic through infectious diseases, I'm bringing you now to something that I want to get on my soapbox for, and that is syphilis. Now, syphilis is a disease that you maybe know a little bit about. Maybe you've heard about it in a historical context, but syphilis is back in town, and uh, California has the dubious uh, distinction of being third in the country for congenital syphilis, and that is not something we want to be proud of. Congenital syphilis can affect a newborn, so if it, and the damage it can do is devastating. It can cause infant deaths and stillborns, but it can also cause severe neurologic, cardiac, pulmonary damage. And this is uh, facial disfigurement and changes in the teeth. This is a really uh, serious thing. And the cases in California in the last six years have jumped from 33 cases to 283. And that's the highest number of cases in uh, any state, and it accounts for the third highest rate per live birth between Louisiana and Nevada. And we have about a third of the nation's uh, congenital syphilis cases. Uh, This is devastating, and especially when you consider that many countries, including developing countries, have virtually eradicated this illness by making sure pregnant women are screened and treated for syphilis. 
So the World Health Organization set a benchmark that it expects 80% of the world's countries to meet, and they probably will, 50 cases per 100,000 people. We do not hit that standard. And we're talking about meningitis, anemia, enlarged spleen and liver, pneumonia, mental retardation. So this is the sixth largest economy in the world. Why this dramatic spike? And I want to just make a little segue here and talk about about syphilis testing. Because when I was training... In order to get married in the state of California, you had to get tested for syphilis as a requirement because congenital syphilis had been a big problem in the first part of the 20th century. That changed, and we got it much, much better. Part of that was because outreach for gonorrhea and chlamydia led to treatment of lots of people, particularly with gonorrhea, with penicillin, And penicillin kills syphilis, even if it's in its secondary or tertiary stages. Penicillin is a very effective treatment. So we got rid of the um, reservoir of syphilis cases when we were testing married people, and we would do contact tracing or not pre-married people. We'd chase down their sexual contacts if they did test positive and get them tested and treated. And that sort of test and treat thing really works when you've got a long latency disease like syphilis. People get it. They don't really have much of a symptom. They have a sore initially, and then that sore goes away. And then months later, they develop a rash and maybe a low-grade fever. That's the dissemination phase. After that, they just carry it around in their bloodstream and can infect and damage their offspring. So it's a serious, it's a serious problem. Now, California requires screening for all pregnant women at their first prenatal visit, but the problem is for more than half of these congenital syphilis cases, the women didn't get prenatal care until their third trimester. And another thing that we have to talk about is meth, because these congenital Syphilis cases track to areas where methamphetamine use is very high. And in those areas, about half of the pregnant women who babies had syphilis acknowledged using meth. Uh, 13% said they exchanged uh, sex for money and drugs in the year before their diagnosis. And a lot of transactions lead to a lot of exposure. Uh, It's also an issue in the LGBTQ community. Uh, but it's unusually, it's been unusual otherwise to see a sexually transmitted disease in that community cross over. So we're seeing a lot of higher rates in pocket communities. And in certain areas, uh, the rates of syphilis itself have really climbed. And we talked last week, I believe, about infectious, uh, trans- sexually transmitted diseases. And We've had, uh, as the whole, we win. We have the highest rate of all the states in the country. And the rates have climbed 45% over the past five years uh, in California. So it's not just a syphilis problem. A lot of people have multiple infections. Obviously, anyone who's incarcerated or working in the sex industry, they're at greater, greater risk for unprotected sex. 
uh, trying to get home, uh, people who are without housing tested, houseless, unhoused people tested is important. Uh, certainly reaching out in those communities that have a high uh, drug issues. But I really think that a little more money thrown at this problem would save a lot of money in the long run in terms of the care for these children. So I want to just go back a little bit and talk about syphilis as a historical entity. From the very beginning, syphilis has been stigmatized. It's the, a disgraceful disease. And it's, it's very funny, actually, historically, because every country whose population was affected blamed the neighboring country. So in, uh, even in now, in Italy, Germany, and the UK, syphilis is called uh, the French disease. Well, it's called syphilis, but it used to be called the French disease. The French used to call it the Italian or Neapolitan disease. The Russians called it the Polish disease. The Polish called it the German disease. Uh, a whole bunch of people, uh, Danish, Portuguese, and uh, the inhabitants of North Africa, like Morocco, called it the Spanish-Castilian disease, and the Turks called it the Christian disease. Uh, over in India, as you might expect, the Muslims blamed the Hindus, and the Hindus blamed the Blasms, and in the end, everyone blamed the Europeans. But where did it actually come from? And uh, the... I won't go into the mythological things, but let's talk about the let, let's talk about uh, just a little literary aside before we go any further. This is uh, this is a, a short story written by Arthur Conan Doyle, in which he is, uh, of course, wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories, and uh, in it. He's describing the signs and symptoms of a disease that later we came to describe as neurosyphilis. This is tertiary syphilis, where the syphilis gets into your brain and damages your nerves. But he told the story about a num- nobleman in London who is revealed through, to the reader through the description of his abnormal teeth. They're called Hutchinson's teeth and interstitial keratitis, an inflammation of the eye while also seen in congenital syphilis, proof that, in fact, masturbation doesn't make you go blind, but congenital syphilis might, but congenital syphilis might. Um, in this disease, uh, in the story, the, the man is supposed to be married, but uh, when he finds out that he has this disease and that his offspring would be affected, he decides to commit suicide. Uh, it's a, This is an ironic story because Sir Conan Doyle was wrong about uh, this. In fact, syphilis is would syphilis is passed if the mother has it while she's pregnant, but it would it's not passed uh, from a person with congenital syphilis to their offspring. So, uh, just a little historical aside, we'll take a moment uh, to talk about the. Uh, various hypotheses. There's uh, the favorite and the one that I think the most popular we'll start with, and that's that the navigators in Columbus's fleet brought syphilis back from the New World. Of course, they dropped off smallpox, so I'd say it was an even trade. But this theory is supported by a lot of historical documents. Uh, The physicians 
uh, with who were present at the moment when Christopher Columbus returned from America, and they started dis- seeing this unknown disease that showed up in Barcelona in 1493, and also was found in Española, which was the first place colonized by the Spanish when they went to the New World. Uh, there's a manuscript that describes that the pilot of Columbus and several other members of the crew were already showing signs of syphilis when they got back to the New World. So it's a solid hypothesis. There are others, however, because there's other forms of treponema disease that uh, Pinta, Yaz, endemic syphilis are found in North Africa. They're found in other countries. And uh, the idea is that something like Yaz might have mutated when it got to colder and drier climates. And then venereal syphilis came out in areas where people had all, had uh, better personal hygiene, so their exposure to this mutated uh to this mutated bacterium was in fact only sexual and it's not clear exactly where it came from but what is clear is that it's nasty and so what i am hoping is that we will be making inroads with more aggressive outreach but you know you might want to talk just a little bit about uh infectious disease testing by your rapid screening technology. And I talked about how in England they had done a pilot study. Uh, I think we discussed this last week, but it could have been the week before. The vending machines that were put out in various places in England got quite a lot of use. They were essentially buy your STD kit here and get tested. And they found that there was quite a lot of uptake and that they found quite a few cases, and presumably the people who were positive stopped having sex with others and went off and got themselves treated. I went online to see what was available in the United States, and there are multiple kits that uh, are available that essentially are a self-swab. You have to describe whether you're a male or a female. They are highly accurate, and you can get the works. You can get the full Monty, syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and hepatitis B, uh, all for 75 bucks on sale on the internet. So my point is, you don't necessarily have to do a doctor's visit to make sure that you're safe, and maybe that's something everybody should know. I also want to point out that people over 45 are less likely to use condoms. They are not less likely to have sex, and they are not necessarily less likely uh, to have multiple partners. So I think we need to reset what, how we think about sexually transmitted infections and, well, uh, definitely de-stigmify them and recognize how important it is for women in particular to protect their fertility. And postmenopausal women, you really want to just protect yourself from... Uh, a, spreading these infections, and B, there are urinary tract complications and consequences. Uh, gonorrhea can, in fact, cause oral infections, and that's something that we we doctors often forget. A really bad sore throat that looks like really bad strep in a person who engages in oral sex 
you know, we probably should be checking them with one of these rapid gonorrhea tests as well. Hello, uh, this is Dr. Don Motika. You're on the air. What's your name and uh, where are you calling from? Uh, this is Gene from Pacific Grove, Dr. Hey, Don. Hey, Gene. Oh, hey, happy, happy Valentine's Day. Oh, well, thank you, sir. Did you bring flowers? <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> I wish. Uh, did, you okay. take, did you take flowers or candy to somebody today? Uh, it was my 42nd anniversary of uh, asking my wife to marry me. Oh, that's wonderful. What good timing you have. <laughs> yeah, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, what can I help you with, sir? Okay. My uh, uh, my buddy in Florida has a, uh, what's uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has been talking about, which is, uh, uh, what, the AFib. Oh, AFib. Okay. Yes. And he's had a heart uh, pacemaker. And he went back to his doctor and he said, well, we can, uh, you can do this or you can do this. And they were talking about some drugs. And the other thing they were talking about was an experimental this. But now he just wrote me back and said, well, it, uh, they're going to do an Abe, uh, Abe, Abla- Ablation. Yes, it's, um, Ablation is how we pronounce and it. And he yeah. says he says his his AFib is very steady, and that's what they want to do. So does that? And that he already had a a heart pacemaker. So I guess they go in and they do something to your heart, your tissue, or something. Yeah, and, I'll describe it to you in gory detail if you like. How old is your friend? <laughs> okay, I'll take it either way. All right. How old is your friend? Uh, Eighty-five. Eighty-five. Okay. So this is not. A person who really needs to have a you know major thing done, and I would question myself because uh, I tend to be more conservative. I would question whether he really needs the ablation. And indications for an for for the ablation procedure would be that the atrial fib is cramping his style, and that would mean he's not able to exercise as he would normally would, that he's having difficulty with uh, activities of daily living or that, uh, you know, he's tired all the time. In other words, that it's interfering with uh, with him. And a person who's 85 could potentially be quite sedentary or quite active. So tell me more about your friend and how he's experiencing his AFib. Okay. He is depressed. Uh and he's been seeing a, a physical therapist, and he's not doing that now. He hasn't been doing his exercises. And uh, so I I think I think that he's impacting just... Yeah, he sounds imp- like he's imp- being substan- what I would call substantially impacted by it. Yes. Right, and that's important because I have many people who have AFib and feel fine, and they're not in any way impacted... Because uh, every person is unique, and how and atrial fibrillation essentially is a loss of the bounce. Now, I'm sure that you've in your life jumped on a trampoline and jumped <laughs> on the floor as well. And there's yes. a substantial difference in the rebound that you get, right, from the yes. trampoline. You stretch the trampoline, and then as it as it uh, kicks back. It, it scoots you higher. And so 
that's going on in the heart. When the heart beats, it beat. There's there's a bump bum. The first of those beats are the atria contracting, and they contract. They're littler little cavities, but they have filled with blood, and so they contract and they squirt the blood across the valve into the ventricle. Now that squirt causes the ventricle to stretch under you know ideal situations. And the rebound from that stretch is just like the trampoline. So the heart, the, the, you get the stretch and then the beat, which is timed just perfectly to coincide with the stretch. And so the blood squirts out of the heart into the lungs and into the aorta and thence to the rest of the body with a bit more power, about 15% more oomph, if you will. And that's that 15% can make a big difference if you're a competitive athlete or even if you're a non-competitive athlete and a person who's just active around their property, for example. Uh, yeah. In that circumstance, that's a takeaway. And so we we have some drugs that, for, for the most part, the two classes. One of them is rate control, where the person's fine. We just don't want the the rate to run away with them. Because if the heart starts beating fast, if the atrial fibrillation gets too fast, then you're sitting there and your heart's beating at 150 beats a minute, and that's at rest. So then you're exhausted all the time, and it's dangerous, and eventually the heart will uh, either go into failure or you'll have a heart attack, and either way, it's not good. So we always want to get that rate back down to under 100 at least. And so we use rate control drugs, and the other drug we use is uh, blood thinners, and uh, yeah. nowadays it's either going to be uh, warfarin or Coumadin, the old one where you have to get your blood tested and you have to eat a special diet, or the new one, which is still quite expensive, but it's very convenient for everybody, and so people actually take it and don't screw up, so we, we tend to use that one even though it's much more expensive. The, What's that called? Oh, there's several. Um, no. So okay. there's, there's Zarelto is one brand and there's there's three or four of them. So I got uh, you. But yeah. what we're doing with those drugs is uh essentially making the blood not clot because it wants to clot in the heart. Wants to clot yeah. in that atrium. And then when you get when you do pump the blood out, you're pumping not not liquid blood, but blood with little little coagulations in it like when you try to make uh when when you try clot. to put stir, stir your cocoa into the uh, you know, into the warm milk and you don't quite do it fully and you, when you get to the bottom of the dregs, there's a little lumps of cocoa. Well, the little yeah. lumps of blood lodge in your brain and give you a stroke. So, Or yeah. they can lodge in your lungs and give you pulmonary embolism. So either way, uh, you don't want that. So, uh, so we use those two drugs. So then you're stuck with two more drugs. Let's go to the contrary. All right, so we're not going to sit there. We're going to get the ablation. In the ablation, they will go into your blood vessels and they will snake a little catheter all the way up into your heart. And yep. they will go from your, they will essentially go up from your right heart, from, they'll go up your vena cava and into your right heart and then mm-hmm. across your heart and into the left atrium. There's a little trap door that you can get by there. And so they'll go in there and they will they have a little rapidly vibrating radio frequency uh knife if you will it's it's more like a wood burning tool 
like when you take a soldering iron and make marks in wood, you know, that was a craft when I was growing up. And so the, and and they burn around the pulmonary artery where it's coming into the left vent, vent, where it's coming into the left atrium to provide all that oxygen laden blood coming back from the lungs and send it to the rest of the body. So the wiring diagram of the heart is such that if you burn around (laughs) that area, you stop the atrial fib. It's, it, it's, it like dams it up and it can't perpetuate. So it's like you have a short, you've got a short circuit in the heart. That's kind of what AFib is. And this, uh, this grounds it out and it's crazy that it works. And it's amazing that they do this literally on a beating heart. So I've, if you go online and look for ablation videos, you will see these, these, these images of this beating heart and you'll, you'll see the doctor kind of like tooling around with his hand and he's actually like zap, zap, zap when the heart beat, he's when the heart beats, he's going zap and he's going this little circle around the thing. It's amazing eye hand coordination. It's a tour de force really of uh, human dexterity, ingenuity, science, you know, the whole nine yards. It's amazing that we can get, do this and get away with it. Uh, and it, has a very good chance of restoring his function back to what it was. And at, I hope, I hope he's otherwise healthy because it is a strain to do this. And so if he's got a lot of problems, it might kill him. So it you, you, you have, it, well, it, it is scary. It is a, it <laughs> is a big deal and it's, you know, it can go massively sideways in skilled hands. It's usually, in and out and you're done and your atrial fib is gone or it comes back and they do it again. And I've had many people uh, at this point in my, since this was initiated a little over 10 years ago, it started to become common uh, and more widely available. You want to certainly encourage him to go to a person who is, you know, very skilled at this, who's done a lot of them, uh, if he goes to a teaching hospital, this is one where I would uh, suggest that he insist very strongly that he wants the attending and not the student to do the case. Now, that's very selfish of me. I know. No, I understand. But, but it's, this is, you know, Barber College, right, fine, the hair grows back and you get a bargain. But, you know, they don't even, when the, stu- when the fellow does the study, you still get charged the same. I think you should get a discount if somebody's learning on you from the institution. But, uh, yeah, I'll just hold my breath for that one, right? Yes. No, okay. uh, uh, we went through something like that with my wife when uh, she uh, uh, she had a uh, her last uh, pulmonary thing, and we had the, uh, at Stanford, the treating anesthesiologist, the uh, resident wasn't getting it, and the treating didn't either. She got through. The operation was great, but uh, the bruises from both of them are going, wow. <laughs> yes. Anyway, that was, it, that's another story. It, yeah, it abla- but if you look at May- the Mayo Clinic, ablation just sounds like they go up and they take something out of your little tissues out of your heart. No. No, no it, it, actually, okay. it actually is. They're not really removing it. They're, they're ablating it, which means they're destroying it. So it's kind okay. of you remember Fantastic Voyage 
when yes. remember when they get into the guy's brain and they have the laser and they like <laughs> they laser his tumor that's ablation okay that's ablation. by the way folks if you have not it if you're young and you have not seen that movie it is it is a complete <laughs> it is a completely hilarious movie and you should youtube the Raquel Welsh immunoglobulin scene even if you don't watch the whole movie it is it, i have seen it it is on youtube it is hilarious and uh Okay. 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 I appreciate it. Uh, and he has a, a, a son of his is a, a doctor who he had his cardiologist talk to him, and then he emails me. And it sounds like, well, we're going to have an ablation, and I'm going, okay. Well, I guess you've talked to everybody you could talk to. I'm talking to the best. Oh, so, thank you, he, sir. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. This email came in from Sarah in. San Jose. Sarah writes, uh, I met you at the De Anza flea market and I need uh, help with some questions. So thank you for giving me your information about how to reach the program. I always do that when I talk about the program to people because one person's question will generally answer a question that a lot of other people either have or haven't thought, haven't realized they have. And so I find it's the best way to reach out. I need help getting unconstipated before a stool test. I have SIBO, that's small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, folks. And I'm trying to test for H. pylori and, and parasites. I went off most herbs that can kill anything for the last two weeks and got more constipated. I'm currently on a low FODMAP diet and I need to incorporate more fiber, but I don't have time before this test. For motility, I'm only taking magnesium citrate in the evening and uh, motility pro, ginger and artichoke, uh, very late in the evening or first thing in the morning. I'm very constipated. Will my stool test be accurate when I'm so constipated and pooping rabbit pellets? Uh, Will taking Miralax affect the accuracy of my stool test? Well, uh, if it's a test for just H. pylori and parasites, Sarah, Neither the neither the Miralax nor the others will. I'm a great fan of milk of magnesia uh, because it it works faster than Miralax. I don't know what your time frame is here, and more magnesium will usually do the trick. Uh, another thing you could use would be a good the, an old standby called mineral oil. It's a little unpleasant to take, but it's uh, very effective. You may overshoot, but your H. pylori and your parasite tests will be fine regardless of the stool consistency. Uh, all right, so our next question, my gastroenterologist has ordered parasite with H. pylori test from Quest times three, although insurance may only pay for one. Uh the parasite test is typically done three times because parasites are hard to find. It's a little bit like rats in your garage. If you see one rat, you've probably got 10. If you don't see a rat, that doesn't mean you don't have one. So you go in and check multiple times. And we've set upon three because it, the that usually is frequent enough, if you check three different bowel movements, you will see some ova or parasites. I will say that depending upon the lab, I think that uh, Quest is less 
accurate than one of the other tests? You mentioned functional stool tests like doctor's data or GI map. Uh, those are good tests because they check for the D, the RNA of parasites, which is unique to the parasites. Now, of course, if you ate contamin- food that was contaminated with parasite, well, then it would still show up because it won't tell you whether the parasite is alive or dead. On the other hand, if you see parasite eggs, yeah, you know they're hanging out and having a party. So both tests have their, uh, both tests have their purpose. I tend to bias if, towards the, uh, d- the RNA tests rather because I don't know how good the technician is. And so if it's a positive parasite test, great. But if it's negative, is it really negative? I think it's a pro- probably a pro forma thing here where they're ordering parasites because they always do. But you don't have anemia, uh, I don't think. So it's not, you don't have blood in your stools. I'm wondering, you know, do you really even need the parasite test? But the GI guy is going to do it just like the GI guy is going to do an upper endoscopy and a lower endoscopy because that's the standard of care and they're damn well going to do the standard of care. And I don't blame them a bit for holding to that because that's the safe space for medical practice. Do the standard of of care. When you step out of the standard of care, you're doing the standard of scare. You're scared that you might be blamed for something bad happening and not have a fig leaf to defend yourself. And that's what the standard of care is. It's really a fig leaf in a lawsuit. We violate it at our peril. Now, for acid reflux, Dr. Don, I talked to you before about getting uncomfortable throat from trying uh, hydrochloric acid without stomach upset. You were trying to help me heal so I could take the HCL. I have a lot of undigested stool, and I think she means undigested food frag- uh, fragments in her rabbit pellets. I, you mentioned marshmallow and licorice or some combination of herbs. Could you be more precise which herbs you recommend? So what I'm talking about uh, here, Sarah, is a class of herbs called demulcents. And demulcents are coating agents. So there are a lot of the things that you would use for a cough, like slippery elm and whorehound, uh, are also used for this marshmallow, not marshmallows as in the candy, but marshmallow, which is an herb, the mallow that grows in marshes, and licorice both have strong demulcent characteristics. And so you can buy proprietary herbal extracts that contain these things. My favorite products come from a company called Pure Encapsulations. You can buy buy them online. They are one of the most cost-effective companies. I do not receive any commercial support from anybody, but I have my favorites because I like quality and I like value and I know how to shop, which which is why I share this advice with my audience because you really don't know how to shop and you're confronted with so many options um, when you go online. And someday, I'll every year or so, I do a how to shop for herbs online and what to look for show, but I, I think I did that over the summer. So what should you buy? Pure Encapsulations, they have two products. One is called DGL, so that's Dog Georgia Lawrence and uh, Plus. And the other one is called Heartburn Essentials. So you would acquire these products. You would take the recommended dose, which is two tablets twice daily. does not have to be with food. And these would coat and help your 
if you have if you have an ulcer in your esophagus or you just have raw tissue, the the vinegar or HDL is going to hurt too much. I also did say ten seven to ten days of proton pump inhibitors is great. Uh, pantoprazole protonics is a proton pump inhibitor, and I don't like to take them for the long term. If you take them for the long term, you're going to upregulate the cells in your stomach that make acid. So when you so then you won't be able to get off of it easily. Uh, your doctor also gave you Pepsid, so he's really kind of hitting you with both barrels, as they say. I would point out that the protonics really needs acid environment to be activated, and the Pepsid is going to reduce the acid some, so it may actually not play well or all that well with the protonics. I generally don't use both of these in the same person at the same time. And I'm not sure if your gastroenterologist knows any pharmacology. So I'm just going to say, no, I don't think they should be taken together. I hope that's been helpful. And uh, I'll take just a brief pause and remind you that you're listening to K-Squid 89.5, 89.7, and 90.7 on your FM dial. And we are the new squid on the block. Not so new anymore. We're feeling our we're feeling our tentacles stretching out. Let's go back into the infectious disease for one more dive and this one to talk about one of those uh one of those poly uh resistant multiple drug resistant uh, orga- organisms, multiple drug resistant organisms. Let's get those R's in order, Don. Uh, Acinetobacter baumani. This is a, definitely an emerging problem and it's coming out of conflict zones. So it's kind of like karma for war is recoiling back on us. Uh, anti- uh, microbial resistance is one of our most significant global health concerns. We're having trouble developing new antibiotics. There isn't enough money in it, quite frankly, and therefore uh, it needs to be supported by government funds because we most definitely need them. The bacteria are smart and they are finding ways to develop resistance. Basically, one of them develops resistance and trades the knowledge with all of the others across species, which is one of the fun things bacteria are able to do. So conflict zones are hotbeds, and we'll talk about why, of the emergence of multidrug-resistant organisms, but also now people traveling, uh, people arriving home from uh, leisure travel with a wound, and colonized with one of these organisms, have uh, the, ch- the opportunity to spread it actively in the community before the the resistance is identified. Particularly medical tourism, going abroad to get a, let's say, a facelift or a new knee. Now, you're in a sterile space in the operating room, true, but in the hospital and in the recovery areas, you are going to have a high potential for being exposed to some bacteria. And in uh, many countries, though the multidrug-resistant organisms that you're exposed to will be ones that don't exist here, and you can carry them back without actually even being infected. They can colonize parts of your body, not your wound necessarily, 
and you can bring them back. We don't force people, we don't force sterilize you when you come back from a, a country, but we really do need to think to think about doing more public education. Another problem is refugees, right? People who are fleeing conflict. Uh, and that is a growing trend. In 2022, almost 110 million people, that's a 74th that's a of the global population, that's a lot of people, had been forcibly, forcibly displaced within their country of origin or to a neighbor, neighboring country. And Afghanistan, the Syrian, uh, Syria and Ukraine are three big culprits and a lot of, there's infrastructure damage in these war zones. There's less water, less sanitation. There's less laboratory testing available. Medical care is often performed in sort of ad hoc operating rooms uh, where proper asepsis just simply can't be maintained. And what doctors do in that circumstance is they take a deep breath and they use what they've got, which is broad-spectrum antibiotics and prayer. And they try to get those people through their injuries, through their wounds. Uh, But even scarier, the metals, the lead and the other metals that are left behind in the environment actually may be a driver for the emergence of novel mechanisms of resistance. In fact, bullets may actually, in a, or an ordinance that explodes, may actually stress the bacteria in ways that allow them to become multidrug resistance. So we're going to talk now about uh, carb, which, crab, which is multi, uh, carb, uh, sorry, carb, crab, Carbapenem resistant Acinetobacter baumani. This is a big disease affecting U.S. military personnel coming back, started back in 2004, and this is a very disease resistant. It produces something called carbapenemase, which makes it pretty much impossible to kill with most of our really good drugs. And the more conflict, the more displaced people the more the things are spread about, and it's a vicious cycle. The more drug resistance is uh, is created. Now I'm going to take a moment and get, shine a ray of light on that in the last five minutes of the program, and that is that Harvard scientists have recently created a new antibiotic that can treat this uh, crab, the carbapenem-resistant acetobacter, aceto you heard me before, uh, accounts for 2% of infections in the U- U.S. and 20% in, in ICUs around the world. It's resistant to all the current antibiotics and is so difficult to stro- destroy that we haven't found a new drug in 50 years. This new antibiotic takes a completely unique approach. It's called Zosurabalpin, and it has a, a very, very unique mechanism of action, which I think can be uh, certainly used on other infections, but let's be smart this time and save it for when we really need it. So messing with the membrane of the bacteria is one of the things that penicillin does. This drug messes with it in a completely different way. Uh, Inside the bacterial cell, a a substance called lipopolysaccharide is made, it's manufactured, and this is then transported to the cell membrane, 
and it goes, bacteria have a two-layer cell membrane. It's a lipid bilayer. It goes to the outside of that that lipid layer, and then it's actively transported through a mechanism uh, called LPTB2FGC complex. Not saying that again. Uh, so this complex it actively moves the LPS out of the cell out and into the outside, so it's facing out. And by the way, LPS, these lipopolysaccharides, are one of the culprits in how a bad microbiome causes inflammation in humans or other animals. It gets into your bloodstream and it causes inflammation, it causes activation of the immune system, and it contributes to autoimmune disease. In fact, LPS flares, just like those toxic algae blooms that we sometimes see in the ocean, are associated with flare-ups of diseases like rheumatoid arthritis because that particular LPS is a mimic for the surface of the joints in that individual, so you end up essentially vaccinating them against themselves through molecular mimicry. So this actually destroys the bacteria preventing by preventing the LPS from leaving the cell. The LPS builds up in the cell and poisons the bacteria. So it's poisoned with its own, its own biological product. And that's going to be, first of all, the molecule is shaped in such a way it's going to be very difficult to break up with an enzyme. It's got a good possibility of being very difficult to form resistance against. And that is going to allow us after a fairly scary and spooky show uh, to end on a positive note. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.